Nigel. He's nice, isn't he? Um, so, <laughs> he is. He's nice. Give him a, yeah. So, this evening, we are starting a new series, and it is called The Shame Game. And we are going to be talking about the subject of shame for the next three weeks. And um, just before we go any further, I just want to say that it is a serious topic. It's a topic that is likely to press a few buttons. And it's kind of pressed my buttons as I've been preparing to speak this evening and also preparing the series because it is... It is not an easy subject to talk about, and it will go into um, areas of our lives that aren't, we're not particularly desperate to be on show, and things that we would kind of rather keep hidden. And so I'm just going to say that as a little sort of precursor to this whole next three weeks. And, um, and we just want to say to you that you're, you're free to kind of take it as lightly as you need to for the moment. And um, just take your time with it and just listen. And you don't have to completely sort of... We're not expecting you to unravel this evening. But it may be that there might be a little gentle sort of teasing at that sort of knotted ball of wool. So um, that's just a little precursor, really. And, and it may be that you want to sort of stay slightly distant from the subject this evening if it's pressing all your buttons and, and take a bit of time to think about it during the week or maybe find somebody to process with. So, the shame game. What are we talking? Why are we talking about shame? Okay, I'm going to give you a little illustration. This week, or um, actually last week, I went for my one-to-one supervision time with Dave Mitchell. So once a month, one-to-one, and we have a little chat and we talk about the things that I've been doing and doing in the church, and we talk about make plans, that sort of thing. And um, he talked to me about me being a bit defensive about something, and I thought. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you talk to me about being defensive? And, um, and we talked a little bit more, and I was being a good Christian leader. I was schooling my face to look like I was receiving it with humility and grace. But inside, I was thinking, hang on a minute. There's, you know, how dare you talk to me about this stuff? Don't you realize that? And my, um, my hackles began to rise, but I, it didn't show on the surface, and it looked like I'd just received it, you know. But actually, the reality is, I was rattled. And um, you know that feeling when somebody says something about you, and you think, that's not right. It's kind of like there's more to the picture than you've seen, and you haven't realized that there's all these circumstances that are not being seen, and you haven't quite got the picture, and hang on a minute... Who identifies with that um, thought and feeling? Put your hand up, right up, if you've ever felt indignant about things that have been, come on, there's, do you know what, it's all of you, it is. <laughs> Indignation, do you know that feeling? That feeling of, oh my goodness, it's not okay for you to speak to me like that. So that, what is that feeling? What is it about that feeling of being rattled like somebody is just, you know, able to get under your skin? And actually underneath it, you might recognize in a moment of insight or two that there's a kind of vulnerability there. It's almost like underneath that, there's this thing of, oh, there's some things here. I don't really want to be, have somebody talk about this stuff. I don't really want somebody to see me or see 
that aspect of me. I want them to see that I'm altogether great. That's one end of the, the shame spectrum, really. It's one end of that sense that we have of vulnerability and, you know, that beneath the surface there are things that we're not sure about in ourselves, maybe things that we hate about ourselves, things that we would rather not be seen and we would like to look very, very together. And right at the other end of the spectrum is, well, let me just tell you a story. One day, Jesus is coming out of the temple and it is at the height of his popularity. Everyone loves him and everyone is pressing round him. They're desperate to hear his words. They're hanging off his words. He's popular. And there's this great crowd around him. And suddenly, the crowd is kind of sliced in two because there's this sort of dark group of dark-robed priests pressing and pushing through the crowd, and they're pulling and dragging a woman with them, protesting right into the center of the crowd, right up to the feet of Jesus. This man, who everyone is looking at him, suddenly all eyes are on this woman trembling in front of Jesus and then probably on the ground, sobbing, pulling her robes around her, trying to cover herself up. And one of the priests steps forward. This is all in John 8, the Gospel of John. One of the priests steps forward and he says, Jesus, this woman has just been caught in the act of adultery. And our law says we should stone her. What do you think? Should we stone her, Jesus? Now, John says as an aside in that moment, he sort of says um, they're trying to trap him with a theological question. They don't really want to know the answer. They're not about justice because if they were about justice, surely the guy would be there too. This is not about justice. There's so much injustice in this little story. And they're desperate to trap Jesus. And they do not care about this woman exposed on the ground who one minute ago or maybe a few moments ago was doing something behind closed doors, caught up in something. Who knows what it was? Do you know, we don't even know her name. It feels like an injustice not to even know her name. And we don't know the guy's name. But she's caught up in something, and we don't know if it's something she voluntarily was in or something that she was pressed upon her. But all that we know is that one minute she is hidden, something is happening behind the scenes of her life, and the next minute she's exposed on the ground and trembling with fear and every eye is fastened on her and the gospel writer is obviously trying to uh, sort of portray this is her worst nightmare her, a living nightmare for any of us to have in our moments of vulnerability and shame and exposure that is what that story is about and Jesus has a particular way of handling it. We'll go back to that in a minute. But that is the other end of the spectrum of shame. Because in this spectrum of shame are the things that we do and the things that we are and the things that we feel about ourselves where we feel vulnerable. There's an innate vulnerability in being a human being. And science tells us that shame is more than just a feeling. It's a whole body experience. When you have an attack of shame, then your body gets 
gathered into the attack. Your brain is hijacked. Your physical body is, is hijacked too. You go red, you sweat, your heart beat um, rises. They say that many people report a slowing down of time when you have an attack of shame where it feels like everything is magnified in slow motion. You go into this place of shame and fear. And for many people, actually shame is something that accompanies trauma, childhood trauma, things that have been traumatizing to them. And it feels like bound up with these difficulties and experiences is this um, feeling or experience of shame. So Brené Brown, many of you will have read her books, very famous these days, but she has done 15 years of research on shame. And um, she, she, she really says there's something essential about us that is vulnerable. And if you don't know that about yourself, then even that is a journey for you to go on because our vulnerability is something to be celebrated, but it actually leaves us open to the problem of shame. She says, this is shame, intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Flawed and unworthy. Now, maybe you don't think those words very often. I'm flawed and unworthy. But you may recognize that in certain situations when your buttons are pressed or you're exposed or you're fearful of being exposed, your real fear underneath it is that that flaw that might be exposed will make you unworthy of love and belonging. That's the deeply rooted fear that we all battle with. So I'm just going to run through really quickly a few quotes. These quotes are from people who... Uh, some of whom, whom are in this room. They're just people who are amongst us. They're you and me, really. So have a look at these. I'm afraid when you see who I really am that you'll reject me. Why can't I think myself out of this place? If I was a better person, I would be able to. Everyone seems to have it all together. What's wrong with me? I'm ugly. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm weak. I feel so unworthy, dull, inadequate. If people knew this about me, they'd be disgusted. I wish I could just disappear. All of those things are quite normal things that people um, uh, sort of have in the background of their lives. And again, you might be thinking, well, no, that's not me. I'm quite cool about myself. I'm okay. Have a look at this list here. Because there, these are some indications that you might have some shame-based thinking going on. Okay, worrying about what others think about you. Feeling rejected, inadequate, and a failure. Worrying that you're not being respected. Anyone got that going on at work? You're not sure it's being noted how brilliant you are? Worrying about your performance. Who worries about their performance? Most of us. Perfectionism. Any perfectionists that are often quite proud of themselves? Yes, I'm a perfectionist, we say, in a kind of quite a proud way, meaning, you know, I do everything really well. But actually, sometimes perfectionism hides. It's a drive. It's a drive that won't, it's relentless. It won't let us off the hook. Nothing's ever good enough. Feeling like an outsider. Trying to hide or be inconspicuous. A fear of intimacy. Hiding behind humor. Humor's a great thing, isn't it? Some people hide behind it because we're afraid of being known. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to read some verses from the book, the chapter, th- chapter three of the book of Genesis. And this is a chapter that is talking about what theologians call the fall. And we're just going to go straight in there. But I just want to say this, that when, when we read these stories, you know, they, they can have this feeling of myth about them, talking serpents for one thing. But that is not the way that Jewish hearers would have heard this story. They, won't, they don't um, receive these stories in that way. These stories are written for Jewish hearers. And when they hear them, what they hear is, this is our story. This is the story of the human race. This is my story as part of the human race. This is describing something that is so fundamental to being human that actually these stories, they are kind of like archetypes almost of how it, what it is to be human and what it is to be a human being and this innate vulnerability. So let's just read this, these few verses from chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But when the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. It's a very sort of poignant story. It's a very powerful story. And it, I think we're supposed to just identify this is our story. You know, this is two people, a couple, who had a place of intimacy with God, and it was cool. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, it is bliss. They are strong, powerful, intelligent people who are given a huge place of authority and power over creation to bring order out of chaos. And they're in absolute communion with God. There's this portrayal of this moment when God comes into the garden in the cool of the evening. And you're supposed to think, I think, this feels like a familiar picture. There's some familiarity going on. There's this communion. And their identity is bound up in their relationship with God and their place in the garden. And then everything gets disrupted Because there's a voice that is saying something opposite, something that is in contrast and is actually tempting Eve to think differently. So we hear this this serpent say, did God really say, did he really say it? And Eve clarifies the situation, he pushes a bit further, this voice says, did God really say it? Actually, what what he told you isn't completely true. 
you know, it's not that you're going to die. Actually, your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to be enlightened. You're going to have the things that you might dream of. You're going to have some power that you haven't currently got. Don't you want that? And in this moment, Eve, this woman, has to make a decision whether she's going to trust the voice of God, which she knows, or this new voice, which is dismantling the intimacy and the trust that she has with God. And, you know, she goes with this voice and she eats the fruit and she gives it to Adam. And the whole story unfolds until the end of time. And when eventually Eve and Adam are told to leave the garden she's given this name and it says in the book of Genesis she's called the mother of all the living and the story of these writers they're telling us this is our story the living this is us and so there are these voices that actually speak against intimacy and identity and strength and power and peace with God and we've all got these voices going on in our lives. So here's some voices that might have been responsible for bringing some shame into your life. I'm going I'm to go there and say, your parents. Now, some people have got wonderful parents. Many of you have. Many of us are parents, and we're trying to be wonderful. <laughs> And we know we're not always wonderful. And honestly, there are times when I said some things to my kids and I thought, oh my goodness, they're going to need therapy for that when they're older. <clears throat> I'm just a little bit too aware of actually, you know, the damage we can do unwittingly. You know, to say to your child, oh, your bedroom's tidy. Oh, I love you. Tying performance to love unwittingly. Just trying to get some good stuff done in the bedroom tidy. And all the kind of whole range of activity around that, that parents, you know, sometimes they, they carry their own stuff, don't they? They're battling with shame themselves. They can't help but communicate their shame around their body image or their lack of success at work or their weakness or their failure. They can't help but do it. They can't help but communicate their fear of intimacy with their wife or husband. And there they are parenting you and, oh, it's all coming out. Shame is easy for parents to communicate shame, especially if they've not dealt with their own shame. Some parents are absent. Some of them are distant. Some of them are abusive. Some of them are abusive on purpose. And all of these things, they are a voice that says, there's something wrong with you. You're not up to the mark. You're not okay. You're weak and you're not valuable. You're not lovable. Maybe you're not even worthy of love. Other voices, our peers. You know, our peers. You know, one of the things that's really struck me over 30 years or so of praying with people in ministry is how common bullying is. It is weirdly common. I mean, if I was to, I don't want you to put your hands up, but if I was to get you to put your hands up, if you've experienced some bullying when you were a child or, you know, even when you're older or even in the workplace, do you know nearly all of you would put your hands up? It's so weird. Why? It's strange, but it's so common. And one of the things that happens when bullies get into action is they speak to you about your worth and they say you're not worthy of belonging and that's a voice that communicates to it and weirdly you know when we get older and that voice can replay in our minds and in a like a sort of a tape going on in the background or a recording going on in the background and strangely we can almost 
join in and carry on the voice and say the very same things that were so awful and that were said to us to back to ourselves. It's like we just take on the job of being a bully and we become bully to ourselves. It's not uncommon. Some of you are bullying yourselves. You're looking in the mirror and you're saying really bad stuff. Or you're looking at your performance at work or your ability to make friends or your social skills and you're saying really bad stuff about yourself and it's just the stuff that was said to you at some point sometimes the surrounding culture is a shame inducing thing our impossible standards of beauty Brené Brown says that unfortunately there's a generalization women are most commonly ashamed about their body and men are most commonly ashamed about being weak and a failure at work that's her experience. Scientific American did a study a few years ago and they said women are more vulnerable to this and adolescents particularly vulnerable to hearing the message of shame and getting caught up in it. Culture, it's toxic sometimes. Sometimes our own voice joins in. And if we've had things that have happened to us like trauma or difficulty in life, sometimes we conclude from those traumatic events, there's something wrong with us. And our own voice becomes this shame-inducing thing. And we're speaking to ourselves in ways which are really unhelpful. And finally, the voice of the enemy, the serpent. You know, many of us will recognize that in this area of life, it can get very dark. It can get very dark in our thought life. It can get very dark in our, the way we feel about ourselves, the way that our emotions can plummet into the darkness because of shame-induced thinking, shame-based thinking. It can get very dark. And we want to recognize that, that it sometimes feels like we're touching evil. Not our evil, but an evil influence that hates us. And the Bible would say that is true. You have a spiritual enemy who wants to pull you down into the darkness and discourage you and make you feel rubbish. So those are the voices. And that is the kind of voice that Eve and Adam were hearing. And so what do they do? They hide. They are hiding in the garden. The garden of bliss. The garden of communion with God. They're hiding. And God comes and he says, where are you? And Adam answers and he said, I, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. We're going to talk next week really about these hiding mechanisms. What happens when we start to create mechanisms that we can hide behind and how they distort our personality and distort us completely. But shame makes us hide. Let me just read this, this quote to you from a scientific paper on, um, again, the sort of the biology of shame. And this writer says this, shame pain has a characteristic action urge in the body that represents the innate tendency to curl up and withdraw and to be as small as possible to disappear from the view of others. Mindful inquiry is needed to elicit this pain, but it will usually be found that the shoulders are pulling down and forward as if to protect the chest and abdomen where the visceral impact is felt that is a strongly worded scientific paper 
describing this physical effect where you, people almost want to disappear off the face of the earth. And this is what Genesis chapter 3 is describing our tendency when shame hits us to hide in the bushes and to try and disappear. And shame is the hide behind many hiding mechanisms. We'll talk about them next week. But things like defensiveness, um, righteous indignation, anger, fear, shyness. Many of those things have got their roots in the vulnerability that we feel around shame. And it is the source of many things like that. It's the reason why sometimes in our hiding, we just end up sinking to the worst, lowest level of what we're, we can do and what we be. And actually we end up, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy in the bushes as we're hiding. We become the worst version of ourselves. And that's the awful trap of shame is that what, it, what happens to us is we disappoint ourselves in that place because we find that actually we're not the best that we could be. And we end up acting out these scenarios that we would never have want to be sucked into saying things that we'd never want to have said about ourselves or other people doing things to comfort, to escape, doing things in the darkness that become a place, a trap for us. And that's what it's like to hide from God. It says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. And beyond cure, who can cure it? That's our situation. That's our state. And then what we see is there is a meeting in the garden. And this is a meeting that is a crucial point in the beginning of the testament about the action of God on the earth. It's crucial. And we have this plaintive cry that comes out from God. Where are you? And many theologians say it is the most desolate moment in the, in the Testaments. <laughs> Where are you? God, who has made you and I for communion with him, to be loved, to be known, to be happy, to be free, to walk with him in friendship. This God calls out, where are you? Because we've gone and we're hiding. And Adam and Eve are hiding. Jesus said about himself, the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And I wonder if it's not actually the most desolate moment in the Old Testament. I wonder if it is the shape of things to come. It is a voice that is saying, where are you? I am after you. I am looking for you. I know what you've done and I see you hiding amongst the trees and I want you out here. Out here in an open and spacious place. I want to know you. I know what you've done and I still want to know you. Because Jesus coming to planet earth is God's where are you. And maybe today you've come to church and you're thinking, I'm looking for God. I've just decided that I am going to start looking for God. Well, the news here is he's been looking for you for a long time. And he's always looking for you. And he's been looking for you and calling you and saying, where are you? 
in your shame, in your darkness, in your fear, in your anger, in your brokenness, in your dirt, in the things you have done which you feel are unforgivable and have sent you into the bushes, he is saying, where are you? And it's really important we recognize what his voice sounds like. When I was 23, I was going to be married to somebody who's not my current husband. (laughs) And um, I was going to be married. We were seven weeks off the wedding. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. But we were going to be married. And then I found out something about my future husband that was really awful. I found out he'd been lying to me about some really significant things. And so we broke up just before the wedding invitations went out. And when I realized what had been going on, and I heard sort of some of the things that he'd been saying and claiming that just weren't true, I felt like the stupidest person on earth. I just felt like I should have known. I should have been wiser than this. I should have been, you know, on the ball. I should have spotted it. I should have been able to see it. I just felt so stupid. I felt humiliated. And it also felt really rejected, really like painfully rejected. We've been going out four years. It was awful. All of our friends were mutual friends. We had a life planned. I had a job to go to, not in this city. I had, we were buying a house. It was just awful. It was humiliating. (laughs) And I felt terrible. I felt so rejected. I felt like Oh, I've been exposed in a vulnerability that is just, you know, so embarrassing. So embarrassing. And I ended up going on, um, over the summer, I went on this mission trip to Italy. It was a mad mission trip, and there's a story for another day. But on the, on the day that would have been my wedding day, August the 8th, um, I got up early and I went outside. It was about 6 o'clock in the morning, and the sun was coming up, and we were staying in a derelict house on the top of a mountain. It was a mad mission trip. And um, <clears throat> I went out, went up to this garden. I went, I climbed to the top of the mountain. It was just in the garden, the very peak of this bit of the mountain. And on the top of the mountain, there was this rock that was kind of about that high. And I climbed up onto the rock and I got up on top of it. And I was on the highest place on that, that mountain. And I had my Bible and I sat there at six o'clock in the morning feeling this sense of, you know, what am I now? All my plans have come to nothing. I'm coming back to Bristol. What's Bristol, you know? <laughs> Nothing's happening there. And um, I, had, I felt like I had absolutely nothing, and I'd been reduced to the rawest version of myself, and I didn't like myself at all. And actually, I realized as well that, you know, over the time that I'd been at university, I'd led a bit of a mixed life. I loved God. I was compromising all over the place, compartmentalizing my life, and it wasn't a straightforward picture. And there I was, in all of that, sitting on the top of this mountain. And I opened my Bible, and it fell open at a particular place in the book of 2 Corinthians. And I opened it at this passage, and it said this. It said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our suffering so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we have received from him. And you know, in, in that moment of shame, to be honest, 
I felt God meet me. I felt he was meeting me, not in the shadows where I was hiding, but on a mountaintop, on a rock on top of a mountaintop, exposed, you know, and I felt like he was saying, I'm going to lift you out of this experience. I'm going to comfort you, first of all, and I'm going to cover you with mercy. And in your shame, you will receive my mercy and you will receive my comfort, my blessing, my healing. Not because you deserve it, because you don't, quite honestly. And actually, your summary of how you feel about yourself is pretty spot on. In fact, it's worse than you think. You're worse than you think you are. But I have come to you. And not only am I going to cover you with my mercy, and I'm going to comfort you, I'm going to use this to comfort others. I'm going to show you who you really are. And I felt in a very quiet way that day that God gave me a bit of a pattern of what I would do with my life. I didn't really know very much about it, but I felt like I would be using it. And to be honest, I would say the last 35 years, that's what I've done. I've lived out of that verse. Comforting others is really important to me. With the comfort I've received, I can comfort others. And this is what God does with shame. He meets us while we're still ashamed. He meets us in the mess, in the bushes where we're hiding. And we haven't yet healed ourselves. And we haven't yet sorted it out. We haven't become a powerful minister who can minister healing. We're a broken person. And he takes our broken places and he makes them a weapon. He weaponizes our shame and our suffering and he uses it to pierce the darkness that is what he's going to do with your shame if you let him when you are healed when you are more whole when you are freer and you can use your story and please let us tell our stories if we don't tell our stories then we keep the weapons in the cupboard where do they go weapons the store that's not where they're supposed to, they're supposed to be for battles and your story is a weapon that God is going to use. Brennan Manning, some of us absolutely love Brennan Manning, a broken priest, an alcoholic, even to his death, but someone who ministered in the unconditional love of God so powerfully it's unbelievable. He said this, in a futile attempt to erase our past, we deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become a light for others. That is what God wants to do. He wants to make your inner darkness a light. And as I was coming um, down this evening, I'll just read this, this final verse, actually. Just read the little passage about Jesus. We're going to Finish the story about Jesus and the woman. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. They kept badgering him. You know, they kept badgering him, the priests. The voices keep badgering. They want to keep you down. They want to ruin you. They want you to be kept in the shadows. But he straightened up and he said, the sinless one among you go first, throw the stone. It's a challenge, isn't it? Because reality is, what he's saying there is, we're all in this together. We're all in it. There isn't anyone who's not. So shame tells you you're the worst. You're the only one who's struggling. Jesus said, 
no one who's without sin. So you can't throw a stone. And they all walked away, one after the other, beginning with the priests. The woman was left alone. Jesus stood up and spoke to her. Women, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Where are they? Jesus says. Where are they? Where are you? Where are they that condemn you? They've gone. Because there is no condemnation. Paul says in the book of Romans, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation. That's right, Mel. And Jesus says that to her before he says, go and sin no more. And for those of you who think, I just need to clean up my act before I can get to God. You've got it the wrong way around. You won't be able to. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then go and sin no more. So, yeah, just to finish, little sense that I just had of God speaking to me as I walked down to church this evening. It was The sun was setting and there was a really lovely sunset. It was almost over. It was kind of dark and the sky was, fa- it was fading, but there was these amazing colours, but it was nearly gone. And I just felt God say, even dark sunsets are beautiful. And he can take something that has become very dark in your life and call beauty out of it he can turn it around because that is what he does the light when the sun goes down the light doesn't go away does it it's coming around again sunrise after sunrise his mercies are new every morning there's provision for you to go on a journey with healing from shame and it doesn't all have to be today But today is a good day to begin and say, God, I want to be an open book to you. I want you to take my shame, my suffering, my pain and weaponize it to pierce the darkness. Because that is what he's calling us to be, people who pierce the darkness. So I'm just going to invite you actually to two things. One, I'm going to invite you all to stand in a minute, not yet. Because I think there isn't, we're all in this together. You're in it and I'm in it. <laughs> and I'm going to pray for us. But I'm also going to, we, all of our ministry team, I've just said to them, just come up to the front. And I just want to say to you that everyone can come. <laughs> because we're all in this together. And if there's something that you want to say to God, something that you want to respond to, something that you want to ask him, some sense that you want to say, I'm sorry for hiding from you some sense where you want to say I want to forgive the people who've driven me into this place and I can't do it but I want to begin like Joe was saying all of those things are valid all of it and if you can't if you feel totally stuck then that's a valid thing to come and get prayer for as well so I reckon that covers pretty much everyone and I'm just inviting you to come and we will we quite like it a bit messy here a bit messy while the worship is going on and we're just going to get on and pray for people we might just lay hands on you and not say anything because you need to encounter God but that's what I'm inviting you to do but first of all stand with me <laughs> And if 
you, if you feel comfortable and you're able to um, just close your eyes, maybe put your hands out. And I'm just going to pray and say to you, God, that we're all in this together. We have made a lot of mess between us. And we have had things done to us that have really harmed us and made us want to disappear off the face of the earth. But you can see us. And I know today you are saying, where are you? Come out and meet with me. And so we pray, we say, God, we let you look at us. We step out into your loving gaze, into the light. And internally, we just recognize, and I just want you to recognize that if there's an area of your life where you know you're stuck in shame, you don't need to do anything other than just acknowledge it for God. Say, it's here, God, you know the thing. Pray, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit. I'm just going to wait for him to minister to you, to speak to you, to love you, to switch your light on. Let's just wait for a minute. Come, Holy Spirit. Some of you need to know the mercy of God. And he's saying to you, he's the father of mercies. He's the origin of mercy. And there's enough mercy, enough grace to cover your shame. Some of you hate yourself. You've got your reasons. And you want to disappear. God is romancing you. I'm telling you. He is romancing you. He is captivated with you. He likes what he sees. Step out into the light. Why don't you just ask God to take whatever has been done to you or whatever you have done and make it a weapon to pierce the darkness? I pray, God, that you would come by your spirit. Fill us with your strength and power now. I pray that you would come with the living power of the kingdom of heaven. Come into this room. Come downstairs as well, into the crypt where they're meeting. Jesus, would you come, the living one. You were dead, but now you're alive forevermore. You have conquered death. You've conquered shame. You went to the cross scorning its shame. So come living Jesus, come and transform us, transform us, light up the darkness, make beautiful sunsets in every life here and teach us how to use this thing to pierce the darkness, dismantle the kingdom of darkness and draw many, many people, thousands of people into the kingdom of light, transferring from darkness to light. Help us, God to be your witnesses, the witnesses of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Let us be that, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.